Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Stephen King Cast, one man's musings on the works of Stephen King. Each week, we will examine a different entry in the bibliography of Stephen King in the chronological order of publication. Today, we'll be reviewing 1980's smoking hot hit, Firestarter. And everyone, today's podcast is really, it's, it's a milestone. With Firestarter, We've gotten out of the 70s. We're smack dab in the 80s, baby. I cannot wait to see what this decade has in store for Stephen King works. Um, now, be, before we get into the Wikipedia summary, I, I really want to just talk a little bit about um, how I felt when I was reading this. Uh, because as you know, Stephen King is considered the, the master of horror and, and has been since the, the very beginning of his career, right off the bat with Carrie. But as I've sat down to, to reread each book, for this podcast, I, I find that calling him the, the master of horror is a very limited description for his abilities. And at the time of um, the, the release of Firestarter, I wouldn't even call it an accurate title. So, I mean, let's just take a moment and, and look at the books. So, Carrie was published in 1974, and it takes place in the not-too-distant future of 1979. Now, although there's an iconic scene involving a lot of blood, I, I, I'd say that the major plot point of the story, The Girl with Powers, is explained with science. And as a result, I, I would call that a science fiction story. Now, Salem's Lot and Shining, I'm going to give them uh, the, the title of horror. Those are two horror novels. You know, the former is about a small town infested with vampires, and the latter is a haunted house story. So, yep, okay, you know, books two and three are horror. Um, and then, you know, Stephen King published uh, Night Shift, which is just, uh, you know, previously published short stories, which are all horror. But then he comes back and just knocks the doors right off the hinges with The Stand, which is a fantasy novel set within a post-apocalyptic American wasteland. So I, I would say it's both fantasy and a dystopian future novel. Um, and that's 30 years before dystopian genre was, was all the rage uh, as it is today. And then he followed up the stand with the uh, intimate thriller, The Dead Zone. And, and then we have Firestarter, which is a sci-fi thriller. And if it was remade into a movie today, it would be a big uh, budget blockbuster. So if we count Night Shift, King has released seven publications. And, and of those seven, three are horror. And if we don't count Night Shift, then we have six publications, of which two are horror. And these aren't even including the Richard Bachman publications. So we have A Bullied Girl with Powers, A Town Overrun with Vampires, A Haunted Hotel, The Ultimate Battle Between Good versus Evil, A Man Who Can See the Future, and with Firestarter, really, you know, some people might say it's about a girl that can start fires with her mind, but I would say it's the tale of the government's destruction of the American family. So to call him a horror writer at this point is really a disservice. I know upon release of Salem's Lot, his agent was worried that he'd be typecast as a horror writer, which Stephen King was proud of, and it's not a knock on King at all. But I feel like calling him just a horror writer at this point is A, incorrect, and B, an insult to his writing ability because with each of his, these entries here, he's established himself to be a very diverse storyteller. So, I just wanted to get that out of the way. Um, now, before we get into re our review, let's look at the Wikipedia summary so I have a foundation upon which I can build my analysis. Andy and Charlene Charlie McGee are a father-daughter pair on the run from a government agency known as The Shop. During his college years, Andy had participated in a shop experiment dealing with Lot 6, a drug with hallucinogenic effects similar to LSD. The drug gave his future wife Victoria Tomlinson minor telekinetic abilities and gave him an auto-hypnotic mind domination ability he refers to as The Push. They both also developed telepathic abilities. Andy's and Vicky's powers were psychologically limited. In his case, overuse of the push gave him a crippling migraine headache and minute brain hemorrhages, but their daughter Charlie developed a frightening pyrokinetic ability with the full extent of her power unknown. Although much later in the novel, Charlie develops the inner conviction that she will eventually be powerful enough to change the sun in some way. The novel begins in Meteor Race, with Charlie and Andy on the run from shop agents in New York City. We learn through a combination of flashbacks and current narration that this is the latest in a series of attempts by the shop to capture Andy and Charlie following an initial disastrous raid on the McGee family's quiet life in suburban Ohio. After years of shop surveillance, a botched operation to take Charlie leaves her mother dead. Andy, receiving a psychic flash while having lunch with work colleagues, rushes home to discover his wife murdered and his daughter kidnapped. He then uses his push ability to track the slightly cold trail of Charlie and the shop agents, catching up to them at a rest stop on the interstate. He uses the push to incapacitate the shop agents, leaving one blind and the other comatose. Charlie and Andy flee, 
and begin a life of running and hiding using assumed identities. They move several times to avoid discovery before the shop catches up to them in New York. Using a combination of the push, Charlie's power, and hitchhiking, the pair escape through Albany, New York, and are taken in by a farmer named Irv Manders near the fictional town of Hastings Glen, New York. However, they are tracked down by shop agents who attempt to kill Andy and take Charlie at the Manders farm. At Andy's instruction, Charlie unleashes her power, incinerating the entire farm and fending off the agents, killing a few of them. With nowhere else to turn, the pair flee to Vermont and take refuge in a cabin that had once belonged to Andy's grandfather. With the Manders farm operation disastrously botched, the director of the shop, Captain James Hollister, or Cap, calls in a shop hitman named John Rainbird to capture the fugitives. Rainbird, a Cherokee and Vietnam veteran, is intrigued by Charlie's power and eventually becomes obsessed with her, determined to befriend her and eventually kill her. This time the operation is successful and both Andy and Charlie are taken by the shop. The pair is separated and imprisoned at the shop headquarters, located in fictional DC suburb of Longmont, Virginia. With his spirit broken, Andy becomes an overweight drug addict and seemingly loses his power and is eventually deemed useless by the shop. Charlie, however, defiantly refuses to cooperate with the shop and does not demonstrate her power for them. Six months pass until a power failure provides a turning point for the two. Andy, sick with fear and self-pity, somehow regains the push, subconsciously pushing himself to overcome his addiction. And Rainbird, masquerading as a simple janitor, befriends Charlie and gains her trust. By pretending to still be powerless and addicted, Andy manages to gain crucial information by pushing his psychiatrist. Under Rainbird's guidance, Charlie begins to demonstrate her power, which has grown to fearsome levels. After the suicide of his psychiatrist, Andy is able to meet and push Cap, using him to plan his and Charlie's escape from the facility, as well as finally communicating with Charlie. Rainbird discovers Andy's plan, however, and decides to use it to his advantage. Andy's plan succeeds, and he and Charlie are reunited for the first time in six months. Rainbird then interrupts the meeting at a barn, planning to kill them both. A crucial distraction is provided by Cap, who is losing his mind from a side effect of being pushed. Andy pushes Rainbird into leaping from the upper levels of the barn, breaking his leg. Rainbird then shoots Andy in the neck. Rainbird then fires another shot at Charlie, but she uses her power to melt the bullet in mid-air, and then sets Rainbird and Cap on fire. A mortally wounded Andy then instructs Charlie to take revenge with her power and inform the public to make sure that the government cannot do anything like this ever again and dies. A grief-stricken and furious Charlie then sets the barn on fire. She exits the barn and people start going after her. She uses her pyrokinesis to kill the employees and blow up their getaway vehicles. People try to flee and some do. Military men are called, but Charlie blows up their vehicles and when they fire at her she melts their bullets. Charlie blows up the building, shooting it sky high. She leaves the Longmont facility burning, with almost all of its workers dead. The event is covered up by the government and released to the papers as a terrorist firebomb attack. Shop quickly reforms under new leadership and begins a manhunt for Charlie, who has returned to the Manders farm. After some deliberation, she comes up with a plan and leaves the Manders, just ahead of the shop operatives, and heads to New York City. She decides on Rolling Stone magazine as an unbiased, honest media source with no ties to the government, and the book ends as she arrives to tell them her story. So uh, now is the time of the podcast where we talk um, about the characters. So I'm just going to kind of break down what happens in the story and the effectiveness of the story through the characters because in a Stephen King work, no matter how important the, the, the story might be, the story doesn't work um, unless the characters work. I mean, and, and I really do feel as though the characters are the um, first and foremost important thing in the Stephen King text. So the, the first character that we, we meet is, is Andy McGee. So King hooks us into the story right away, plunging us into Andy's world full of exhaustion, per, uh, perseverance, desperation, uncertainty, and, and paranoia. 
uh, right away when he gets in the cab, uh, we, we learn some of the rules to his power through his interactions with the cab driver. So first of all, we learn that his mental ability, which King refers to as the push, works easiest on bright people, which is interesting because, you know, typically I think that you might find that this ability to uh, suggest to others through um, mental powers um, would work easiest on uh, the, the lesser intelligent people. So I, I just, I like that twist that, that Stephen King does that, you know, it doesn't matter how bright you are, um, that actually might be a, a downfall as we find out later on in, in the novel. So it, it works easiest on the bright people and two, physical contact uh, makes it easier to push. So what's important here is that that King, he, he really hooks us here with, with this following question. Have you ever had the mental ability to control others with your mind? Well, probably not. But have you ever had a debilitating headache? Probably. So while you might not be able to relate to Andy's dwindling ability, you certainly can relate to its after effect, as described on page 5. And just so everybody knows, the edition that uh, I am reading, it is the, um, the Signet paperback edition. So on page 5, then the feeling came, as always accompanied by that steel dagger of pain. At the same moment, his stomach seemed to take on weight and his bowels locked in sick, gripping agony. He put an unsteady hand to his face and wondered if he was going to throw up or die. For that one moment, he wanted to die, as he always did when he overused it. Use it, don't abuse it, the sign-off slogan of some long-ago disc jockey echoing sickly in his mind, whatever it was. If at that very moment someone had slipped a gun into his hand... Um, then he looks at, uh, Charlie and then, but the feeling passed, but not the headache. The headache would get worse and worse until it was a smashing weight, sending red pain through his head and neck with every pulse beat. Bright lights would make his eyes water helplessly and send darts of agony into the flesh just behind his eyes. His sinuses would close and he would have to breathe through his mouth, drill bits in his temples. Small noises magnified, ordinary noises as loud as jackhammers, loud noises insupportable. The headache would worsen until it felt as if his head were being crushed inside an Inquisitor's love cap. Then it would level off at that level for six hours, or eight, maybe ten. This time he didn't know. He had never pushed it so far when he was so close to drained. For whatever length of time he was in the grip of the headache, he would be next to helpless. <laughs> Just reading that scene makes me want to down a couple of Tylenol. I mean, and again, Stephen King, actually, you know what, I haven't really talked about this in any of the podcasts. I, I've taken it for granted, but... Um, I've really focused on his character work, but it's it's really the character work um, hand in hand with his ability here to just write so descriptively. He's able to just make a scene come to life. And in this case, um, a feeling come to life, a feeling that I don't want to have. And if Stephen King was not able to convey the amount of pain that Andy was in at all times, um, he would not be able to create the sympathy needed um, within that character or the perseverance, the fact that he is in such agony and so drained and he just keeps on fighting. I mean, that's a testament to his character and his love of his daughter. And that would not have been possible uh, if Stephen King hadn't written that so effectively. I mean, it, it's an incredibly effective opening. You know, I mean, everything that we need to know is in the first eight pages and it starts immediately with action. A father and daughter are being chased really hunted through the streets of New York City. So immediately the, the, the reader starts asking questions. Who are they? Why are they running? Who are they running from? But King isn't interested in drawn out mysteries and he gives us instead answers, but not through an omniscient narrator, but through the in the moment thoughts of this introductory character, Andy McGee. We learn through showing, not telling, that he has powers of psychic suggestion, powers that are taking a devastating physical toll on his body. We learn that the men had abducted his daughter from school, and we learn that his wife is dead after having been tortured brutally at the hands of these men, and we learn that the men are from the shop. So this reads less like an introduction to a horror novel and more like the introduction to a big-budget summer blockbuster. The narrative is unrelenting. While the shop continues to pursue, never losing steam, Andy appears to go weaker and weaker with each passing page, and with this, King effectively creates the underdog. It's a David and Goliath story. Our two characters have little um, to, to hope of standing up uh, to the monster that pursues them. So with Andy and Charlie, we have a reversal here of the, the Jack and Danny relationship from The Shining. Uh, 
So keep in mind that a few books back, uh, Stephen King had written the, 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 well, I don't even want to call it the father and son story because that's, that's really uh, depressing if you phrase it that way. But it's, um, you know, the, the story of a, a, a down and out writer, a disgraced public school teacher uh, who is given the opportunity to take care of a, a hotel as its caretaker during its off-season months, and he takes along his family. Now, it just so happens that the, the, the hotel happens to be evil, and it takes his insecurities and his fears um, and his lesser qualities and magnifies all of these until he is the monster of the hotel um, and, and actively trying to, to kill his family, um, particularly his son. So in that novel, the father's selfish acts propel the story forward, you know, each act places his superpower child in more and more danger. And here, we have a selfless father whose only goal is to protect his superpowered daughter at all costs, even from herself. So it's a complete reversal and, uh, you know, a, a redemption of sorts. Not necessarily for Jack, but the father archetype that, that Stephen King had established with, with The Shining. You know, and, and we learn uh, everything that, that we need to know really through Andy, and, and one particular scene is very, very effective, and that's the, uh, the, the flashback scene in which we, 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 we learn of uh, the experiment um, where Andy uh, had met Vicky, and they, they both uh, were injected with Lot 6, and it's so well done. Okay, and it works on so many levels, and it's a very short scene. But keep in mind that even though it's short, um, it manages to do the following. Okay, it simulates the warped perception of being under. All right, it's not written syntactically. It's not written like the rest of the novel. All right, it's it's a much looser um, structure, and it just really puts you in the mindset of of, of being I don't know under anesthetic or on on some sort of drug. You're you're you feel and you think the way that Andy and Vicky are feeling in that moment, where their their minds are a little bit more detached from rational thought. So it conveys that experience, um, and, and, and the second thing it does, it, 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 um, it kind of hints that it might not just be an acid trip, um, but might actually be a result of hyper-aware uh, hyper senses. So, I mean, keep in mind that Lot 6 is unlocking something in the mind, and it's just the questions that you know, Andy and Vicky start asking might not necessarily be, you know, just paranoia. The, the questions that they might start asking might just be a result um, of being hyper-aware more so that, than, than ever before due to the growing powers that have just been unlocked in their mind. Three, it demonstrates the danger of the experiment and the lengths of which the shop will go in order to see it through. So, you know, not only are we getting crucial information that propels the story forward, but we are also learning um, the stakes um, that our characters are, are thrust into and the, the, the dangers present with associating oneself with this organization. Okay? And four, and on a character level, this is probably the most important, it conveys the growing intimacy between Andy and Vicky. Now, I, I kind of, I took King to task with... Uh, with Salem's Lot, because I just did not buy the relationship between Ben Mears and Susan Norton. Um, and this uh, novel, you know, it's a meet-cute story. Uh, same thing, they, they meet. Uh, they fall in love, uh, you know, as, as many people oftentimes do, you know, just after they're injected with a super serum that unlocks mental capacities that you didn't have before. It happens all the time. You see it all the time. And it's, you know, the, it happens again here. But uh, it, it, it feels a lot more believable here than, than I believe that it did in uh, Salem's Lot. You know, I, I really do buy Andy and Vicky in a way that I did not buy Ben and Susan Norton. So... You know, we, we, we continue to learn everything that we need to know about Andy. He's he's just a good guy, and he's doing everything he possibly can, um, you know, for his daughter, just keeping them, you know, one step ahead at all times of the shop. And, you know, when he and Charlie are finally captured by Rainbird, you know, I think that on some level they both give in. You know, I, I think that they, they, they both realize that the chase is over, 
and just surrender themselves to this new life that the shop gives them. And, you know, while, while not exactly embracing their time at the shop, they, they don't exactly fight it either, you know, especially Andy, not, not right away. You know, he just, you know, he goes soft, you know, and he goes soft, you know, quite physically for a while, for a while, not, not forever, but for a while. And, and his transformation back to the fighter he once is, it's really a fist-pumping part of this book. You know, I mean, you just really root for the guy who just... You know, he, he realizes that he has, you know, been conditioned to be um, an addict and he gave in, you know, due to the fact that there was this, the, the overwhelming odds, you know, were definitely not in his favor and, and it seemed like they had won and he had lost. But he, you know, when he's at his lowest, he, he can either truly give in or begin to fight and he begins to fight again and it's awesome. And, you know, when he sits down with Cap, I couldn't have been happier. Um, it's a great moment. He starts taking control and he starts owning everyone like a badass. And th the sad thing is, is, that, you know, when he does sit down and starts to push Cap and he starts to take control, you know, I've been conditioned at this point to know when things are starting to look this good, I just know that something bad is going to happen. Um, and King, King knows it and he starts playing with us in that regard, like a, like a cat with a, um, with a mouse and he starts cranking up the tension as we just barrel towards the end. You know, with the flight to Maui moved up by Wednesday, King creates a narrative bomb and the countdown to its explosion is on. Andy has made the plans. Charlie has learned of them. But the wild card here is Rainbird, who is just too formidable of an opponent, too observant to not notice the change in Charlie after she finds out the truth. So with Rainbird's suspicion, we should fear for Andy's plan and for Andy because we know that Rainbird is an opponent he 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 just can't defeat. So and he he doesn't. He doesn't defeat um not 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 walking away intact anyway. Um you know, he he does however give the last of his ability by pushing Rainbird off of the loft, you know, giving Andy an advantage. So, you know, with his death, you know, he he does stop Rainbird. Um, but, but at the expense of his, his own life, you know, and, and from a, just a character standpoint, it's, it's tragic. I remember reading this the first time, um, and just being utterly heartbroken, um, that, that Charlie lost her father. There's just, she's lost everything and he has lost everything. He lost his wife, he lost his daughter, and then he loses his, um, his life. It's just, it's really sad. And I had wanted them to reunite so, so badly. I, I remember being invested in this novel the first time around. Um, you know, I was, I was really invested. Uh, I remember distinctly being invested in this novel, it, uh, the stand, uh, the gunslinger books, and strangely enough, Christine, um, uh, and, you know, the second time around, I, you know, maybe not invested as much. I don't know if you can ever really recreate that that first time around. But still, I, and maybe, you know, because I knew the end, there was less tension there. But, you know, I mean, King does a really good job at making you care about Andy and Charlie and, and their relationship. You know, it's it's a really sweet father and son relationship. Um, you know, I mean, but with that said, you know, as sweet as it is, with his death, you know, he gives Andy his blessing to completely, completely unleash hell on the shop. And when he says that to her, when he tells her to take the gloves off, you know, I can hear, you know, this music in my head just like building and building. Um, and I just couldn't help but get ready for the carnage. And unlike Carrie, which resulted with many innocent teenagers feeling the wrath of a character's rage uh the targets of this particular firestorm are willing perpetuators um that have hunted this family down murdered its matriarch turned its patriarch into an addict and now the daughter into an orphan so everything that happens they've done to themselves so when andy tells charlie to take her gloves off uh, i think that king is giving us our blessing to revel in her revenge so I, I think that Andy was a very strong character. Um, I liked him a lot as as the protagonist, as one of the the, the main characters. Um, and I was sad. I was sad. Uh, and then so he was the first character that we we met, but he's not the most important one. That that would be our main character, our, our title character, uh, Charlie, who is the biological product of genetic experiments, a child created with an enhanced set of genes that allow her to use her mind in fascinating and sometimes dangerous ways. You know, the, the novel is called Firestarter, but not only is she pyrokinetic, 
But she's also telekinetic, like Carrie White before her. And right away, we get a sense of the relationship between the father and daughter early on, with Charlie having to take care of a damaged Andy, which is just, you know, I'm, I'm using the word sad a lot, but it's just sad. It's sad to see. You know, we, we, we learn that she's afraid to use her power, which she refers to as the bad thing, which is just another great character trait on, on King's part, just a little flourish that just makes her seem that much younger. You know, and she learns um, from her dad that, you know, there's little bad and there's big bad. And when there's no other choice, you have to go with little bad. You know, and it's an interesting moral dilemma. And one can't help but feel sympathy for the father and daughter, especially the daughter, who is clearly growing up with the loss of her innocence at an alarming rate. And by the end of the novel, that innocence is gone, gone. So furthermore, with King's... uh, Dependency struggles, um, very well known at this point. Uh, I, I just couldn't help but wonder if King used uh, any debilitating hangovers as a stand-in for the consequence of Andy's powers here. Uh, I mean, there's a feeling of guilt that Andy has um, when he's in this state, knowing that he 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 should be able to protect his daughter but can't. It just makes me think that King drew upon his own experiences to ground the story in a recognizable reality. So, I mean, I, I, did Naomi King have pyrokinetic abilities? I, I, I doubt it. But were there times when the young girl wanted to play with her father who couldn't move due to bad hangover? Now, that's quite possible. And, and maybe because if that's the case and that's true and he did base this, uh, this relationship and the limitations of the relationship um, on, on this very real thing that he was going through. I, I think that that might be one of the reasons why this book is, is so effective. So Andy's powers, um, sorry, Charlie's powers, you know, extend beyond pyrokinesis, telekinesis, and, 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 uh, you know, reading the future, you know, she's also Stephen King's secret weapon for creating a tone of unbearable tension. You know, just look at the scene when they've had a moment of rest at the Manders' house, and Andy gets a sense that they're coming, this time with intent to kill. So through her, King is able to ratchet up the tension, quite literally, turn up the heat. Charlie begins to lose control, and the temperature begins to rise. You know, it's during this scene when we see what Charlie is capable of. Backed against the wall, Andy points her in the direction of the uncommon shop agents and uses her as the weapon they fear she is. She is possessed by her abilities, not unlike Carrie at the prom, um, causing destruction and death and reveling in the powers finally unleashed. Um, you know, when she finally releases her powers at the end, she demonstrates an ability that would make Carrie White tuck tail and run as fast as she could. This novel cannot work if we don't care about Charlie. Um, and, and Stephen King is really good at creating... Uh, interesting and likable and realistic child characters, um, and and he he writes different different kids very differently. Um, I would say that Charlie is very different from uh, Danny Torrance. Um, I think that she is different from um, Mark Petrie from Salem's Lot, and I think that she's different from. You know, the, the next child character that we're going to see is uh, Tad from um, from Cujo. And I think that each, you know, child character is very, very different from the, the one before. And uh, Charlie is such a sympathetic character. You just feel for her. She lost everything. She lost absolutely everything. And there's no way that you can read this book without your heart breaking and, and just by the end feeling complete triumph that this one little girl was able to take down, in essence, the government. So with Captain Hollister, all the dark things that Andy had feared are confirmed. Through this character, King is able to deliver loads of exposition about the shop, the Lot 6 experiments, and the science behind the powers displayed by recipients of the experiments. Um, And this never once bogs down uh, the narrative. So with Cap, King creates an interesting, complex character at the top of the shop. You know, he's kind and friendly, but he's also ordering others to kill a man and kidnap his daughter. You know, so he has a little bit more nuance and, you know, like, um, you know, anyone in power, he he doesn't really care about the good of much else. I mean, he he winds up becoming very um, self, you know, not self-motivated, but um, motivated uh, for his uh, own personal gains. Uh, but his goons, meanwhile, 
do not have any nuance. These are just black hats wearing black hats. I mean, they, they're just mean, you know? I mean, King goes so far as to show scene in a diner um, with the goons uh, just grilling the waitress, and when grilling the waitress, whether or not she's seen Andy and Charlie, you know, one of them purposefully spills coffee, you know, on the ground before smashing the cup, you know, for no other reason than just to be a jerk. <laughs> I mean, these guys might as well just be made of kindling and soaked with gasoline because the entire time we know that they are designed simply to make us uh, want to watch them burn. So with the shop, King has not created a globe-spanning syndicate uh, with a hand in every piece of our lives, you know, watching and plotting with cold ruthlessness. You know, they aren't even secret. You know, they're just simply a bureaucratic organization uh, whose field agents, uh, with one notable exception, are just bumbling dolts. And King has fun with this, you know, with a character stating, uh, if the most efficient of the shop's thousand or more employees had to go work in the private sector, they would have been drawing unemployment benefits before the probationary periods were up. You know, this is never more true than on Andy's worst day when he discovers that his wife is dead and daughter kidnapped due to the hot-headedness of unqualified field agents. I mean, they don't come in uh, and, and try and take Charlie because it's time or because it's a well-thought-out plan. It's just that they're idiots. Um, and that's, that's to me, is, is more frightening. You know, Cap's thoughtlessness results with him choosing to meet Andy alone, you know, thinking that Andy at this point is powerless. Uh, you know, it's a fantastic scene that completely illustrates Andy's cunning while at the same time illustrating uh, Cap's hubris. Um, and so from that point forward, Cap, who had... Um, had a tenuous hold on the shop, um, starts to have an even more tenuous grab on his sanity, and he just loses it completely uh, before just kind of uh, nonchalantly being blown away by um, uh, Charlie at the end. Because by that point, Cap is not the villain. Uh, the villain had long since been emerged at that point, and that is John Rainbird. And oh my god! talk about an underrated King villain. You know, when I do, um, you know, searches online for just, you know, Stephen King images or whatever, you know, I think I'm going to put on the, the Facebook page or, you know, Instagram, um, you know, I'll do a search, you know, Stephen King, you know, Monster Stephen King, and you see the classics. You see Jack Nicholson um, as Jack Torrance. You see um, It, you know, Pennywise, the dancing clown. Um, you see uh, Carrie, you know, drenched in blood. You see... Um, you know, Kathy Bates. Uh, so I, I think that those are, are the big ones. Uh, and I just, it's too bad because this character physically is very memorable, uh, but his actions are right up there with the best of um, Stephen King villains. You know, I mean, there's, there, there's a quote that I just think is just so good and it captured him perfectly and it's um he's the one human being i ever met who doesn't push air in front of him when he walks and i think that that sums up john rainberg perfectly this guy is completely at peace he has a shoe addiction and is so good at killing he can't wait to die simply to experience what he has given to so countless others throughout his career oh my god it's a really cool character i mean he's terrifying you know, so when he makes up his mind that he wants Charlie, you know, we know that she and her father, despite their powers, are completely outmatched. You know, considering that his decision um, to get Charlie uh, and, and King's acknowledgement that, that he wants Charlie, not for the shop, but for his own, own personal reasons, uh, this takes place right after Charlie's demonstration of, of pyrokinetic ability at the Manders house. And it goes to show just how effective King was at the creation of this monstrous man. Just a man who murdered a stroke victim with his bare hands should not be a threat to a girl who could potentially crack the earth in half and change the sun. And yet, here he is. And we believe it. His plan to trick Charlie into a friendship is well thought out and approaches it like a method actor hoping for an Academy Award. And the plan itself is completely sinister. With Rainbird, we've seen a dangerous enemy who can murder without remorse and is fascinated with death. The shop is not the threat in this novel. It might have manipulated the world around Andy and Charlie, but Rainbird was the one manipulating the manipulators. 
Cap is too much of a bureaucrat, you know, just too worried about his own job security to be the ultimate threat. But this uh, philosophizing assassin is the last person in the world Charlie should be with, and Rainbird successfully spellbinds her. What's terrifying here is that he doesn't have plans on ruling the planet with her by his side, which I can see as a motivation in the hands of a lesser writer. For all of his buildup, he's really simply just a serial killer, a very good one, and Charlie is to be the mouse to his cat. You know, what's worse is that uh, his performance is a corruption of the Stephen King trope of the good found within others. You know, as seen in this novel already by the hitchhiker and the Manders couple, King believes that we can only be our best if we embrace those around us, you know, lend a helping hand. Here, uh, this is what Rainbird is doing, you know, befriending a little girl who needs it the most, um, but with the most nefarious motivations and intent. Um, and so, as I said, that is a complete corruption of, of Stephen King's belief in humanity. You know, and the tragedy here is that his plan works. After manipulating Charlie into trusting him, he encourages her to demonstrate her powers, and King uses this opportunity to convey to us that her power levels have increased. In fact, each time we've seen her demonstrate her powers, they, they've grown and grown while her fathers have dwindled with each and every use. So, now look, Rainbird is great and convincing in his performance, but he slips. When at the stables, he gets a little bit too lost in his thoughts and lets slide a smile that causes the slightest of doubts within Charlie. Um, doubts that will later be confirmed by, by Andy. But even with this slip, he's still a master manipulator, coolly piecing together the pieces of Andy's plan, waits for his prey in the loft of the barn like a spider, waiting for its prey to fly in its web. Um, and, and, and like I you know, I mean, Cap, at least... Now, I, I hate even justifying, you know, Cap's actions here because he's still trying to split up a daughter and father and he's responsible for the, the murder of, of Vicky and ultimately Andy and everything. So, I mean, Cap could have done a moral thing here because he was in charge of, of um, the shop. But at the same time, I mean, thinking about national security, I mean, he I can understand thinking that someone with this power level is, is too dangerous, right? I can see that cold objectivity um but rainbird rainbird has just found a challenge um it's purely personal it's it's so selfish that um he wants to see what what death looks like when the life leaves her eyes um and should he die at her hands then hey that's it's a it's a you know it's a worthy death um so, I mean, all of the, the, the pain and, and destruction that he caused, to me, is much more horrible than, than the shop's, uh, you know, bumbling uh, attempts at control. But in the end, I mean, he isn't enough for the McGee's. You know, Andy uses the last of his abilities to make Rainbird throw himself from the loft, you know, giving up his advantage and ultimately sealing his fate. And he's just blown away, just like that. You know, King does not dwell on it very long. Um, Charlie lashes out, and then he's gone in a, in a burst of flames, just melted completely as if he was never there. So I mean, this, this book, uh, you know, I referred to it as, you know, it could be, um, you know, uh, it, it reads, the beginning reads more like a big um, summer blockbuster. Uh, but with that said, it still has, um, you know, some similarities with the dead zone uh, in the sense that it's, it might be larger in scope than the dead zone, but it's it's not so large in scope that we lose the characters. In fact, there's just there's not too many characters in here. We have Andy and Charlie and Cap and Rainbird, and those are and and then you know we have um, you know uh, some doctors you know here and there that but uh, but really it's it's between those four. You know, and so we're able to get to know them, and having covered you know the four of them, I, you know I'm not really going to get into you know, the, the other characters too much because it's they don't really um, contribute that much more to the characterizations uh, or, or, or the big concepts within within the text. So at this time, I, I'd like to get into the Stephen Kingisms, and this is the, the part of the podcast, uh, you know, uh, that I like to, uh, you know, break down the different patterns and tropes that we see from, from Stephen King book to Stephen King book. So the first of which, number one, is Shirley Jackson 
Okay, so, uh, you know, she has been referenced or paid tribute to um, in Carrie, Salem's Lot, The Shining, The Forward to Night Shift, and now Firestarter. Um, so we can definitely tell that this is a um, an inspiration, you know, he, he wears on his sleeve. Number two, um, you know, the innocent people being hunted by evil men. Uh now, that, that sounds so vague, but what I mean by this is that if you swap out Andy with Ted Brodigan, then basically you have uh, low men in yellow coats, right? So, I mean, the hunt by the shop of the McGee's, to me, was just very much uh, like Hearts in Atlantis. Number three, uh, the English teacher. Okay, so when King isn't writing stories about writers, it, seem, it seems as though he's writing about English teachers. In this case, an English professor. Again, uh, as I, I've said in previous podcasts, uh, we know that Stephen King, once upon a time, was uh, an English teacher. And, uh, you know, had he not published Carrie, that's the life he, he would have lived. And what I mean by Carrie, I just mean if he hadn't become successful. So... When reading these characters, uh, I can't help but think that there are some facets of himself worked within them. You know, some you know, some a little bit more obvious than others. You know, what I like about um, Andy is that this character feels like a character to me. He doesn't feel like Steve, a Stephen King analog. Number four, number four, Kingism is a mistrust or concern of the government. Now, King explained that the, the fears of the government had helped inspire Salem's Lot, and it's reared its head more prominently uh, to the plot in The Stand, and was addressed by the characters in The Dead Zone. Now, here, every concern King has <laughs> about the government is channeled right into the shop. More so, the, the shop is a scathing indictment of secret government agencies. It is not an all-knowing evil organization with a master plan. It is comprised of people who don't ever really know what they're doing and make hasty decisions without thinking things through. In fact, I don't even if they even knew what they wanted to do with Charlie at all. At one point, Rainbird has a conversation with Captain Hollister that made me realize I didn't know what the shop's ultimate goal was. The two men discuss Hockstetter getting what he wanted from Charlie and, and having Rainbird kill her as plan B, but I didn't know what Hockstetter actually wanted. You know, if he wants to chart her abilities, wouldn't that mean that they, they need her alive? D does he want to perform tests so that he can recreate the success of Lot 6? I just found, and maybe this is my own misreading or, or maybe not reading clearly, but I just found the motivations to be a little bit cloudier than they could have been. But it's not so much as a criticism as it is, um, it's really a backhanded compliment here because... King does such a good job at keeping you invested in the character interactions, the tension of whether or not Andy's plan will go unnoticed, and Rainbird's slow manipulation of Charlie that we don't realize why Charlie's there at all. So maybe it's um, intentional on King's part. Maybe he's pointing out the futility of it all, a final condemnation on the government, that when the horse catches the carrot, it doesn't know what to do with it. Or maybe he didn't know what to do with the shot. You know, maybe he didn't know... Um, what they wanted to do with her, kill her, study her. Um, either way, it's definitely something that I had, had noticed. Um, regardless, it still falls under the, the category of Stephen King's mistrust of the government. Our number five, uh, Stephen Kingism, uh, is the stream of thought set within commas. Again, uh, King uses italics and commas to give us a sense of characters' thoughts. It's something that we're going to see again and again. We saw it here, and it won't be the last time. Number six is superpowered kids. This is another example of the superpowered child who we first met with Carrie White, followed by Danny Torrance. And keep in mind that when we first met Johnny Smith, he was a child. Number seven is our inclusion of informational texts. In this case, Dr. Pynchon's report after Andy had pushed him. It's just Stephen King's way of, um, you know, uh, just changing the mood a little bit, just adding a little bit of flavor uh, to the stew. And number eight, last um, but not least, actually saving the best for last here as I believe it is the most important, 
It's his belief in humanity. Again, um, I've said again and again that Stephen King is a very optimistic writer. It's something that I believe in. He believes in the good in people, and that is very much on display here in Firestarter. Uh, he's a believer in humanity, and it's evidenced by the kindly man who picked them up hitchhiking. Uh, just like the strangers who assisted Dick Holleran on his quest to get to the Overlook, this man helps Andy when he needs it the most, just as the shop was closing in quick. But that's just a warm-up for Irv and Norma Manders, the kindly couple who takes in Andy and Charlie when they need it the most. Hell, these two characters are so familiar, I kept expecting them to tell the McGee's about how proud they were of their son Clark, who worked up in the big city as a reporter. With the Manders, King merges his belief in humanity with his mistrust of the government, showing how the everyman can stand up against the threat of Big Brother. Okay, so now we have come to the, uh, the part of the podcast where I like to share... Uh, what I believe the most important uh, text excerpt is. And in this case, I'm going to uh, read uh, a section um, in which uh, Andy reminisces um, and really just muses on, on the situation that he's in while he's looking at, at Charlie and he realizes just uh, how awful it is. Just basically what life should be for a little girl it's not, um, and the tragedy of it. So on page 40, Stephen King writes, She got to her feet slowly, brushing the last of the tears away. Her face was a pallid moonlit in the dark. Looking at her, he felt a sharp glance of guilt. She should be snugly tucked into a bed somewhere in a house with a shrinking mortgage, a teddy bear crooked under one arm, ready to go back to school the next morning and do battle for God, country, and the second grade. Instead, she was standing in the breakdown lane of a turnpike spur in upstate New York at 1.15 in the morning, on the run, consumed with guilt because she had inherited something from her mother and father, something she herself had no more part in determining than the direct blue of her eyes. How do you explain to a seven-year-old girl that daddy and mommy had once needed $200 and the people they had talked to said it was all right, but they had lied? And, uh, you know, I mean, I haven't even been talking for, for 50 minutes here, and I've, I've already come to the end. Um, so this makes it one of the, well, not one of the, it makes it the shortest book review uh, podcast that I've done so far. And I feel like I'm, I'm not uh, uh, doing justice to Firestarter because it's, it's a really good book. I enjoyed it a lot, and I, I think that, you know, I'm, I'm very surprised that, that it has not been uh, reintroduced into our pop culture, um, either as a big, you know, blockbuster movie or, uh, you know, a, a television show. I mean, I can very easily see this being adapted for the small screen with each season, uh, you know, being a different act in the novel. You know, the first season can just be the, the adventures of, of the McGee's on the run, you know, not unlike the, uh, you know, the old Hulk uh, TV show with uh, every episode, Andy and Charlie in a different town, you know, I mean, so you would have, um, you know, uh, each episode, uh, you know, have a, a plot of the week, you know, maybe Lot 6, you know, had other other super-powered uh, people. In, in Firestarter, uh, we only see Andy and Vicky and Charlie, uh, but there are others referenced. Um, it's limited, you know, the, these three were the most, well, these two were the most successful, and they, and they had, um, you know, a child that just blew all the other powers away but what if you know what if the other what if there were other lot six experiments and maybe andy is more of a, a proactive character and and he's you know not just on the run but he's trying to find you know the the others while at the same time you know the shop is trying to you know to to find the others as well um and you know that way much like episodic television shows do nowadays you know you'll have like your monster of the week and except for the monster it would be uh you know, a, a super-powered person of the week, um, you know, with, with some close calls of the shop, you know, getting their hands on, on Charlie. And, uh, you know, then you could have a whole season where, you know, they are caught by the, the shop. You know, I can see the, the scene um, at the cabin, you know, being a great cliffhanger for a season. And then, you know, you wonder all summer long, what's going to happen to the characters? And the next time you see them, they're, they're in the clutches of the shop and, 
you know, you just week by week, you 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 just you know you grow more and more tense as Rainbird's plan acts up. Oh my God! And then you know, going back to the first season, you know, when Rainbird first gets introduced, it could be you know this great build up, you know, to the introduction of this character who's just this this walking monster. Uh, you know, so of course, yeah, I'm getting ahead of myself, and I'm and I'm writing the the whole treatment for this, you know, show that doesn't exist. But I, I just think that there's a lot of potential for Firestarter, um, you know, and, and I think that uh, the shop could, you know, continue to be a government organization, or in the climate um, of today, you know, with a lot of people's mistrust of corporations, the shop could just be, a, you know, pharma. Am, am I just talking about fringe? Was this already done? <laughs> I'm sorry, but um, I, I don't know. But I, I whether it's fringe, whether it's not, uh, I, I think that you know this could. I, I think that there's potential. I, I would like to see this this story be revisited um, today. Maybe it'd be redundant at this point, uh, you know, which is too bad. But maybe it wouldn't be. I there have been worse Stephen King adaptations, and there have been uh, chances taken on on Stephen King. Uh, you know, works that I, I think um, would make for, for lesser television shows than this would. Like The Dead Zone on, on USA in the early 2000s. You know, I, I, I think that that is a, a smaller scale. Um, and, and I just think that uh, The Dead Zone, or I'm sorry, The Firestarter could, could be much greater. You know, I don't really expect, um, you know, studio executives to, to go out and, and pick up Cujo to turn into a, a long-term, you know, form of storytelling. But something like Firestarter can definitely be taken. And in this day and age with brand recognition, I mean, that's built in. So, I mean, all you need to do is make the announcement that you're making a Firestarter television show. And I think that a lot of people would be interested. And clearly, you would have to make sure that it's good. All in all, um, it, it's, it's a very well-done book. It's a nail-biter. It's a page-turner. Uh, it is, you know, the, the, the story of the, the underdog and the everyman. It's David and Goliath, as I said before. I'm, I'm sorry, everybody. My, I've been joined by my two dogs who happen to be very small but, but very, very loud. Um, so if you hear any snorting and grunting and wheezing in the background, that's, that's our guest stars. Um, so, uh, yeah, it, it's, for, it's not long. It's not a long book, but it's definitely worth, worth every page. I, I enjoyed it quite, quite immensely. And, um, you know, I, I don't know. I, I don't know what happened to the shop. I thought that the shop was a, a really good, um, you know, villain for Stephen King books. Uh, you know, we saw it first in, um, uh, Firestarter. Um, but, you know, we'll, we'll see the shop again in, in Tommyknockers. And I just, you know, wonder what happened to uh, to this particular villain, you know, this organization. We see them, you know, like I said, in, in Tommyknockers, but then it just seems like Stephen King's done with them and doesn't want to have anything to do. You know, I mean, since then, you know, the X-Files went on and became popular, so the idea of, you know, the, the big organization, you know, full of conspiracies, uh, you know, gets a little bit old. But uh, I enjoyed it for what it was worth, and I would love Stephen King to revisit it again. And so that's, uh, that, that takes us to the, um, the part of the podcast where, you know, I, I will talk a little bit about the... Um, not necessarily influences, but if you if you liked Firestarter, you know some recommendations that that I have for you. Uh, first up, if you uh, are a comic book fan, you might want to revisit the, um, the 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 mid to late '90s uh, comic book series. Uh, you can look at Gen 13 and the the corresponding Team Seven. Team Seven uh, basically is a story of Vietnam soldiers who undergo medical experiments they get powers very similar to 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 andy and vicky you know that not enough to take over the world but enough to set them apart from their you know everyone else around them and they're able to to use them and there's a cost to it um and they're able to and they pass it along to their kids and the the evil government uh you know wants wants control of the children so you know some of the the members of team seven go on the run Others are, are killed, and all of their, their children wind up getting kidnapped, um, and the story of the children is told in Gen 13. So to me, that it, that whole concept, it was taken directly from Firestarter and put into a comic book form. And it was fun. Um, you know, anyone that, that knows their, their comic books know that, uh, you know, image in its heyday, you know, there wasn't always a lot of good to talk about. 
um, you know, and it's 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 really much maligned now. But uh, this was definitely a um, a high watermark for for, for Image. Uh, the, the whole concept of of Andy um, being able to uh, force others to to do something using the powers of his mind uh, made me think of another comic book, um, which will be adapted into a television show produced by Seth Rogen, um, Preacher, which was a great, great comic book. It's a great story about um, really what it comes down to is it's, it's, a, it's a man of faith. Well, actually, no, not a man of faith. It's, it's a preacher. It's a reverend um, on a quest for God. Um, but it's, 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 it's that, but it's, whole, it's a whole lot more. Um, but, but what he has is he has the, the power to make people do things um, simply by, by using his voice. Um, it's, it's, it's the word of God is what it's called. Um, so it just every time that, that happened in the book, it made me think of that. Uh, also, the, the concept of, of forcing others to, to, to do something the way that Andy um, did. There is a great novel by Dan Simmons called Carry and Comfort. When it was released, uh, the back does not, it describes it as the, vil- the villains being psychic vampires. And it's not. I don't know why they said that because vampires take from you and the characters in Carry and Comfort aren't, you know, they, they don't suck blood, they don't suck your soul. They're not psychic vampires. What They, they have mental capacities and they can make people do things using their mind. Um, and it's a long book, and it builds up the world beautifully, and it just shows everyone with this ability um, how they... It's a giant... It's a global chess game that's been being waged between uh, the, the, the different members of that have this ability for generations. And all of us are just pawns, and the, the stakes get raised and raised and raised. It's a, it's a really, really good book. Go out and read it right now. Carrying Comfort by uh, Dan Simmons. The shop and the uh, you know the the evil organization um, I think was explored in great detail in the X Files uh, and the, the whole mistrust of the government really comes to uh, you know comes to uh, a head with with that particular show. So you can go catch what all nine seasons on on Netflix streaming. The father son uh, uh, sorry the father daughter relationship of of Andy and Charlie. Um, was something that I was thinking about a lot when I was playing a video game last year um, entitled The Last of Us. Now, I, I don't know if anyone listening to this is a gamer. I don't really play too many video games at this point uh, in my life, but you know, I'm good for about one a year. But I'll tell you this, The Last of Us, it, it, it feels the experience is less of a video game and it's more of a literary experience. It's incredible. I really have to give a lot of credit to the game developers and the writers because they, you go on a journey and it takes place in a in a post-apocalyptic, um, you know, America. And you know, even me saying that instills within you certain images and expectations. And I'm telling you right now, it it, it takes it into new territory and it doesn't focus on you know, the, the wasteland of America, it just focuses on these two characters, a grown man and um, a young girl, and they have a father-son rela- or father-daughter relationship, and it's incredible. It's an, I've never felt for characters in a game the way that I felt for this one, and it, it was very, very reminiscent of, of Firestarter. You know, uh, just th- this, this couple that is out there in this dangerous world um, with, uh, you know, the, their backs up against the wall the entire time and having to learn how to to lean on each other. And there's, I don't know, I mean, just, you know, the, the girl, Ellie, you know, watching her have to grow up in this circumstance, it's heartbreaking, um, but she's resilient and she's not whiny, much like, much like Charlie. Great, great game, and it's being made into a movie directed by Sam Raimi. So um, I don't know when you're listening to this. I don't know if you're listening to this. Um, you know, within weeks of the recording, I don't know if you're listening to this, years after the recording, long after The Last of Us has have come out and everyone knows of it, but, uh, but definitely the, the Last of Us, to me, reminded me a lot of, of Firestarter. Um, and that's about it. You know, that's, that's all that I have for this week. Uh, so make sure that you come back next week for my review of the Drew Barrymore starring... Firestarter movie adaptation of Stephen King's novel that we discussed this week. And stay tuned after the credits, the credits, 
um, for a very brief discussion involving the Dark Tower. Very, very brief, but I want to get to it. Um, so, with that said, everybody, come back next week. Same Stephen King time, same Stephen King channel, Stephen King cast. Tower fans, I uh, I want to uh, just talk, like I said, very very briefly. I just want to throw it out there, um, as I did with Carrie, and I forgot to do it with um, The Shining, um, really, or or The Dead Zone. But uh, but with Carrie, I had discussed, you know, the fact that she, in terms of of using Dark Tower language, uh, she was a breaker. Carrie was a breaker. She had mental powers that could be used to to help break down the beams um thereby uh you know allowing the the tower to fall when the tower falls so goes existence with it but um you know so king I, as far as i know never you know had any of the the tahin or the crimson king um ever really mention carrie white or danny torrance or um you know Johnny Smith, or in this case Charlie McGee. I was really surprised that she did not show up again um, when the Dark Tower started winding down. Um, you know, maybe maybe she would have been too powerful because in this in this novel she has the potential to crack the planet in half and change the sun somehow. I mean, that's a level of power that um, that's that that's it's incredible. But at the same time. I, what I wanted out of the Dark Tower, um, it, it's, it sounds very much like fan fiction, but I wanted the, the, the Avengers of Stephen King's universe, really. I, I wanted um, Roland, when he entered our world, I didn't, I didn't want him to, to interact with characters that we hadn't previously met. I wanted him to interact with Alan Pangborn, and I wanted him to interact with the Losers Club. And uh, when he went to you know free the Tahin, or went to the Tahin to, to free the Breakers in the Thunderclap, I wanted him to, you know, encounter and work alongside previously established Stephen King characters. So, you know, Danny wound up getting a sequel in, in Doctor Sleep, um, which I will review much, 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 much further down the line, but I will get there, I promise you that. Um, and, you know, he has hinted at a sequel someday for, for Firestarter, but uh, I would have liked the sequel to have come in some form in, in The Dark Tower. Um, you know, and, and that's about it. I, I just think it would have been interesting for, you know, these characters who are walking between the worlds um, to encounter the various characters that Stephen King had created throughout the course of his year. And, and Charlie is one of those iconic ones that I think would have been really good for him in terms of publicity if, if it was a little bit more, you know, I call it fan fiction, but if it was a little bit more on the nose, I think that it would have drummed up a lot of interest and, in, ooh, you know, Stephen King is revisiting these characters, you know, and they're all together. It's like this, this super group. I think that would have been awesome. I think it would have been great. And I really wish that he had done that. Um, so I don't know, you know, as you know, the, the Dark Tower, um, you know, Stephen King said many times that Ka is a wheel, and as we all know, um, you know, and if you are listening to this, I'm, I'm talking to you as if you have read, you know, the Dark Tower from beginning to end, and you've read Insomnia, and you've read The Black House, and you've read The Little Sisters of Illuria, and you, you, you've read everything, so I mean, I just don't want this to come as a surprise, but, so spoiler alert for anyone that, that has not read the Dark Tower. So now is your chance. I'm giving you some time right now. I'm just blabbing on and on and on for you to be able to go away. Are you gone? Are you gone? Did you leave yet? If you're still around, um, I'm going to start talking about the end. I'm going to tell you exactly what happens. Well, what happens at the end is that Roland's story, the main character, it, it starts all over again, but a little different this time. You know, uh, you know, every time you know, he reaches the Dark Tower, he has to start his quest um, from the, the point in which we, we first met him. Um, or at least that's when his go around started for us. Um, you know, each each time it's going to be a little bit different for him. So I hope that uh, you know there's been talk of of a Dark Tower movie, and we know that it exists in comic book format. 
I would like to see the version of the Dark Tower that I've described, you know, take place, you know, in one of these formats where um, where Roland and and the Quartet, you know, uh, meet up with the other characters, where Father Callahan wasn't the only one from the other books, um, you know, and I know that there was Ted Brodigan, um but to me and Shimi, and uh, you know, I, I but I, I I wanted more, you know, I definitely wanted more, and that's that's my own selfish needs, but. I will get to the review of the Dark Tower saga at a later date. At this time, I just wanted to talk a little bit about what could have been and how Charlie could have been an incredible breaker. And maybe that could have been a huge plot point in and of itself. Roland might have had to, you know, maybe he was determined to kill the greatest breaker of all. You know, the the person that could, uh, you know, crack the sun in half or change the sun and crack the world in half and, and that would have been really interesting because we know who that is and there's a conflict for us you know we want Roland to save the tower but at the same time we don't want him to kill this character that we know so that's it now I'm done I am done talking now until next week so like I said stick stick around um, for next week's review of the Firestarter movie before I move on to uh, Cujo, which will come the, the following week after that. So have a great week, everybody, and I'll see you here again. Same Stephen King time, same Stephen King channel, Stephen King cast. Bye, everybody.